You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So You Want to Be a Writer. This is episode 16, and my name is Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Alison? I'm very well, thanks, Valerie. I'm a little bit, you know, I need more coffee, but apart from that, I'm just fine. Well, I have my coffee sitting right next to me, so I'll be taking sips as we record this. Um, (laughs) But what have you been um, up to this week? Um, well, I'm actually being really busy with um, with marking assignments and things like that for, for my Writer's Centre courses. I have quite a few students at the moment and I'm very much enjoying getting them all started and marking the assignments and providing feedback and I find it really inspiring mm. to do it as a teacher. I really, really enjoy it because um, it's just, it's always wonderful to remember just how many stories there are out there and how many publications there are out there and it's um you know it kind of renews my enthusiasm all the time um but what about you what have you been doing well I've been similarly inspired actually because in this past weekend um in all of the weekend newspapers, our students have just been on fire, you know. there's There were two articles in Sunday Life, one from Joe Hartley and one from Colette Beck, who was, you know, former students. It were their, their Australian Writers' Centre graduates. Um, Lisa Schofield and Catherine Rohde both had features in Good Weekend. R- Rob Grant had a massive feature in The Australian and it was just great to hear about all of these successes. But the most frustrating thing for me was that I was I actually spent the weekend in Canberra. Not that that was frustrating, that was lovely. No. But yep. apart from being able to easily get The Australian, it was very hard to get the other papers. Mm. <laughs> they only stocked, like you'd go to shops and they'd say, oh yeah, we only have one copy of the Sydney Morning Herald. It goes at 7.30am. <laughs> which <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, maybe you should get more copies, but okay. Um, but uh, so, so it was wonderful to be able – I've managed to get copies now because I returned to Sydney on the Sunday night and, you know, um, got the papers. But it was, but it was great. And, and, I, and as I've mentioned, I've, I've spent the weekend in Canberra, which was lovely, and I had a, had a series of firsts actually. Ooh, okay, hit me. I felt a baby kick for the first time in my life. Not mine, everybody. Don't, don't. <laughs> no. Have you never, haven't you ever felt one before? Have you never, you're not one no. of those people obviously that walks around feeling pregnant women's stomachs, which is a whole nother subject that we could discuss. No, I was invited to um, <laughs> to feel this. So I felt baby kick and um, I saw blue poles for the first time, you know, the oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Jackson Pollock uh, painting yep. at the National Gallery of Australia and, and saw, you know, quite a number of other fabulous things at the National Gallery. But um, I had never seen it before. So oh, it was a series of firsts for me. Always good to have a first, Val. Yes, you know, always remember your first. So what's been going on in the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week? You have an interesting link, don't you? 
I do. I, I found this thing as I was perusing the world, as I do. I, I do spend quite a bit of my time poking about in writing links. And um, it was a blog. It was on the Query Tracker blog. And it was called Successful Authors Don't Keep Secrets. Mm. And I thought, well, there's interesting, an interesting headline. I do love a good headline. And so I popped over there. And what I discovered was it's a little bit, um, it's written by Ash Crafton, and it's a little bit about the importance of telling people what you're doing when you're mm. a writer. I think that there is a certain amount of of, of secretive behaviour among um, particularly beginner writers and authors in the sense that they'll, they'll be writing a novel but they won't tell a soul. Mm. They won't tell anyone what it's about. They'll put it in a drawer. I know um, one of um, an acquaintance of mine who's written several manuscripts and done nothing. She writes them and then she puts them in a drawer. She doesn't tell people she's writing them. She no one knows about them. And I understand the joy of writing for the sake of writing. Mm. But I think if you are an if you are an author or you want to be a published author, um, telling people what you're doing is a fantastic way to stay accountable. It's yeah. a very interesting thing. Like I um, recently, um, if you were following me on Facebook, I recently wrote the second book in my children's series and I had a very specific deadline in my head that I needed to get this thing done by because I had children going on school holidays, which is always a great motivator. Mm. Um, so what I did was I put up on Facebook, I have to write 35,000 words by this date, which was about four or five weeks, so it wasn't long, mm. and um, and I said I'm going to post my word count every day and I did. And mm. it, it was one of those things of I knew that I I knew they'd be they'd be asking if I didn't get you know at least five hundred words done, but it's not even so much that it's just that idea of letting people know that that's what you're doing. People are incredibly supportive. Yeah, if you, if you let friends and family know that you're writing, then they are incredibly supportive. And you might feel like there's pressure involved in that, and to a degree there might be, but. At the end of the day, it will help you get to the end of the book. That's what yeah, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what about you? What do you think? Do you think it's important to talk about it? Absolutely. I mean, I completely understand that you wanting to keep it to yourself because kind of saying out loud not only makes it real, kind of you're kind of scared that the people around you are going to uh, overly be too overly enthusiastic and encouraging you um, yeah. when you're not necessarily sure this is the path you want to pursue. But um, if you are, you know, relatively sure but that, that this is the path you want to pursue, you should definitely tell people. And one of the things that just warms the cockles of my heart. Oh, um, <laughs> made you sound about 95, <laughs> lovely, yes. Is when people ring the Australian Writers' Centre and they and, and I just go, oh, that's so lovely. And they, they buy a gift voucher and they say, you know, my wife, she's got this novel and I just know it's fantastic and I know all I need to do is get her to this course so that she can be with other writers and I, it's a surprise for our anniversary or whatever. Lovely. Oh, it's really quite lovely. And, you that know, is lovely. Give the gift yeah. of writing. I love that. Mm, it's really nice. And, you know, they um, – and, and, of course, of course, the, 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 the gift recipient, you know, eventually comes and it just has a breakthrough, which is – so it's just great to see the whole journey, really. Yeah, the support is important. Very, Allow very Allow yourself important. to be supported. It's important. Yeah. 
So let's move on to our next link, which is about the author platform. And now we've talked about the author platform before because we've. I think we both agree that the you know building a platform as an author is pretty important in this day and age. But what's mm. really interesting about this article is they make the point, and we'll put the link in the show notes. But they make the point that the author platform is not just social media because so many people think that building an author platform is just getting out there on Twitter, making sure you have a Facebook page, and you know, communicating with your community. <laughs> Whereas yeah. this um, particular article says that it's not just about social media. Um, when it, it, it's written by somebody who was an editor and she was, she, they're saying that what I, you know, try to, to help, um, what, what I now try to help authors hit in their book proposals is it, it, describing their author platform. Um, and they say it's made up of, interestingly, 10% social media, mm. 10% contacts. And so it's often such an overlooked um, aspect of building your author platform because it's other people who are going to champion your work and, and yeah. you know, help build you up. Interestingly, 25% expertise is particularly relevant for, say, nonfiction authors. Nonfiction, though. yeah. Yeah. 15% ability to execute, 10% existing readership. Now, you don't necessarily have to have a book. That could be your blog readers, you know. Yeah. Um, 10% personality, so oh. important because, like, you know, if you don't have one, <laughs> you're not going to be very successful in building well, Everybody's your got one. It's just a matter of being <laughs> the best that you can be, right? Yes. Yes, yes. Of course, everyone's got one, but they don't necessarily let it show through because they no, feel that right. they need to be really professional or they feel they need to talk in a certain way to the public. But, you know, you've got to be yourself. Um, 10% previous books, but obviously that's not applicable if you don't have one. And 10% previous media. Um, and again, that doesn't necessarily have to be about a previous book that could be media that you've received for, you know, some other reason. So, um, yeah, we'll put the link in the show notes, but I think that's interesting. Do you think that there's too much emphasis on, you know, building your author platform through social media these days? Uh, look, I, I do think that that's, that it's something that people tend to focus on because I think in some ways it's, it's easy. Like, I don't know how you feel about that, but in some ways it's easier. You can sit at home and you can do your tweeting and your pinning and all that sort of stuff. And you are definitely making, you know, inroads into your author platform, but it's it's an online author platform. And there are still a lot of people mm. out there that don't really venture as far into the depths of online as people think they do. Yes. Um, and so therefore you really, if, you, if you're going to have a profile, you need to, to have it offline as well. And that's important. And, as, you know, that, that can be done in different ways. Like, um, you know, local, just start locally, like local libraries, local yeah. bookstores, local media, like local papers, those kinds of things. Um, it's often a lot easier to get yourself in locally than anywhere else. And then you've got experience and then you've got contacts and then you've got other things. And um, yeah, it's very, very important to do offline as well. Really yeah. important. Definitely. And I think one underrated uh, activity, and we've spoken about this in previous podcasts, but one underrated activity is speaking. Now, you don't have to speak to, you know, 3,000 people or anything. You can speak to a much smaller group at your local library or at, yeah. you know, a, a local book group or whatever. And I think the thing that people overlook is they might go, oh, but there's only like 10 people who go to that book group or, you know, yeah. we I, there's maybe only 20 people who are going to turn up at the library or something. And, and, 
Yeah. There might be more. I'm just making that up. But I think what's overlooked is if, for example, you're, you know, it's now June and if, for example, you're going to speak in November at your local library and you, you organise that because maybe your book comes out in November or whatever, um, even though you may only hit 20 people or interact with 20 people in November, the reality is that your name is on that website for months yeah. um, in the lead up. And, and it's Googleable, it's findable, people see that you're speaking in a, at an event for, you know, the months before. So don't underestimate that, just the, 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 the listing that you get, if you know what I mean, as a speaker, even at a small event. I think it's also important to think, and I can't remember who said this, but one of our previous interviews, it might have been John Purcell or Graham Simpson, they were talking about Matthew Riley and how he never says no, and particularly in the early days of his um, author career. Mm. He went to everything. He did book list, um, book signings, libraries, everything, and he met people and he connected with people then who are still readers now, mm. and those people are great advocates for him, and they still talk to everyone about how much they love his books. That word-of-mouth stuff that you get by... By going to a group of 10 people, connecting with those people, impressing those people on some level, that yeah. you can't buy that stuff. And that's what you're after. You're after connections with people. And whether you make them in real life or online or wherever they are, mm. that's what you're after. You want mm. that. Absolutely. And that's a good segue to our oh. next link, which is called How Book Launches Have Changed in the Digital Age. I think this is really um, fascinating because, you know, we all know about the big book launches, the fancy party at the cool bar or restaurant or whatever, and you see it in New York movies and stuff like that where you, you know, are you, and people ask, are you going to have a launch party? But things have changed significantly in the past, you know, three to five years, particularly in the last three years in terms of the book launch. Have you noticed that as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a very, it's a fairly rare thing to even be invited to a book launch these days. Whereas I remember maybe 10 years ago, you know, lots of them getting lots and lots of invitations to different things like that. Um, People, it's really interesting you say that because people are asking me now whether I'm going to have a launch for my children's book that comes out in October, the, the first in the Mapmaker Chronicles series. And a lot of people are saying to me, you know, are you going to have a launch party? And I'm like, mm, I don't know. Like, mm. <laughs> I don't know because you just don't see it that much anymore. But what does Anne have to say about it? Well, she says, unfortunately, the era of the splashy book launch is pretty much over. <laughs> Even big-name authors are lucky if they get a congratulatory phone call from their agents on launch day. (laughs) (laughs) So it goes out with a whimper. (laughs) Yes, and it says, before the age of the e-book, launches were all important because print books are given only a few months on valuable bookstore shelves before they're sent back to the publisher to be remaindered and or popped. All print books are in stores on consignment and can be returned at any time for lack of sales. So with the old print slash warehouse slash bookstore paradigm, you have a very small window in which to get your book noticed. So, the, where, and the her point is that ebooks are forever. 
An ebook is just as valuable five years down the road as it is the day you launch it. Retailers don't have to return it in order to make new room for new merchandise. So the retailers aren't compelled to have this book launch to attempt to move all of these books, um, you know, in in that short window. So a lot of people these days, I'm hearing of you know book launches on Twitter and you know online book launches and that sort of thing. Um, and it's it's just interesting to see how it all evolves because one of the things that I see a lot of authors doing instead of channeling that money because it costs money to get the alcohol and the canapes Mm. um uh you know from the book launch unless you get it sponsored or something i'm seeing authors channel that money instead into marketing in a concentrated period in order to get um a a big success in a short period of time still a similar concept because it's because on if you're on selling on amazon what you want to do is in a very defined period of time encourage as many people to buy as possible so that you can then be uh then say that you're a best number one on the amazon bestseller lists or number one in your category or or that sort of thing so So i'm seeing this shift up the list yeah exactly so yeah it's just interesting that's why we're also seeing i don't know if you've also noticed this but there's an awful lot of pre-ordering these days uh, as yes. well and that's another another way that um, authors are and publishers are pushing themselves up those lists to make themselves visible because I guess a launch of any description is about making your book visible for whatever period of time it is um, and I guess that's that's what you've got to look at so I don't know stay tuned I'll give some thought to whether or not I'm gonna have canapes or not <laughs> yes um, well yeah the pre-ordering thing is a very interesting thing and I think um, Tim Ferriss spearheaded a lot of that when in, in some of his book launches because that's definitely how he's uh, shot himself up those lists. He's he offers in for people who don't know he's offered incentives so that if you buy three books, if you pre-order three books, you get X and Y bonus. If you buy oh. hundred books, you get X, Y, and Z bonus. If you buy twenty thousand books, and I. Ooh personally know two people who did that and what? took photos of themselves standing on pallets of books. Um, if you buy 20,000 books, Tim, I, I can't remember exactly the details, but I think you got Tim in person to speak twice, um, you know, and he's got a very big speaking fee at various events, but also, you know, you could also spend one-on-one time with him on holiday or something like that. Um, it's me. I yeah, have to uh, come and clean my house for that. <laughs> I'll put that link in the show notes as well because it's it, he, it's quite interesting how he dissected his um uh you know pre-ordering period and 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 how he managed to convince many people to buy huge numbers of books. Goodness me. Yes, all very strategic. So, um our writing book this week on the craft of writing doesn't exist yet because it's oh. out it's out in September right however I wanted to mention it uh because I'm not sure if you, you've heard of Anne Handley but she's um she's written she wrote content rules um okay. with CC Chapman and I mm-hmm. I've heard them both speak at South by Southwest but she wrote a really interesting um blog post called the 14 stages of writing a book or finishing any big project because she's just literally finished her book and has packed it off to Wiley and her book is called uh, her manuscript for her book she's just finished and it's called everybody writes um anyway we'll put the link in the show notes for the 14 stages but very quickly um they are confidence anxiety 
elation because, yes, I'm writing a book, fantasy, (laughs) um, self-doubt, procrastination, realisation, bargaining, depression, Mm -hmm. and then repeat the last four steps for an indeterminate period of time. Then, interestingly, actualization, exaltation. Yes, I wrote a book. I'm done. Then consciousness, when you realize, oh, I used to be an author. Now I'm in sales. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, ain't that the truth? (laughs) (laughs) That's when the hard work starts, doesn't it? It does. It really does. That's interesting. So that sounds like it'll be a great book, like your go-to guide for creating ridiculously good content. Mm -hmm. Um, Sounds like an interesting read. And I can definitely relate to all of those stages of writing anything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What do you think is the hardest part or the hardest stage for you? um, Well, self-doubt is a big problem for most authors and I think that it's, you know, like the only way that you can actually ever finish anything is just to, to, you know, beat that over the head. Mm. At least knock it out until you get the manuscript finished and then it can all come flooding back but at least you've got something to work with at that point so that's better. Mm. Um, And procrastination, of course, is always going to be a massive issue because when you're faced with a huge task Mm. and, you know, 80 to 100,000 words, which is what an adult novel is, is a huge task, um, it's really easy to just go, look, you know, I'll go and clean the oven because oh, that's got to that's got to be better than what absolutely. I'm trying to do right here. Um, and it's really interesting. Like I noticed just recently, like when I was working on book two for my series, um, I got to about the difficult, the most difficult stage for me is always about halfway through the book because you've kind of you're through the elation of this is going great, this is amazing, mm. and um, and you're into the hard work, you're into the persistence of and, and the getting your, your subplots going and doing all the mm. different things you need to do, and on that on those sorts of at those times, you know, you can be lucky to write 400 words. And if you get 400 words out on a day like that, when you feel like you're writing through concrete, then I think that's a massive, that's a bonus because at least you've done 400 words. And then you have other days where you, you know, 3,000, no problems at all. Um, But I think it's that recognising some days it's just not going to happen for you. And that's when I start weeding my garden and that's when (laughs) I start walking because that's, it's active meditation. And that is really important. That thinking stuff is just as important some days. Mm-hmm. That's all I have to say. <laughs> so so when you say that some days, you know, you eke out 400 words, other days you, you know, you yep. power through 3,000. And you know how you said you've been posting that on your Facebook page? Yeah. Well, um, when it's, you know, 3,000, that's fantastic. Everyone's happy. Everyone's cheering. When it's 400, do people go, oh, <laughs> it's, it's going to be okay? Or what's their reaction generally? Well, they're actually, it's, it's very interesting. I think this is one of the main benefits that writers get from having a fantastic community around them mm. is that, you know, like I remember one day in particular I did post um, – 400 words today, sometimes writing is like walking through concrete and on days like that you need to walk away. I think I posted something like that and I had about 50 people go, it's going to be better tomorrow. It'll be all right, you know. And and that sort of stuff is, I mean, it's just you go, you know what, it probably is. Yeah. I'm yeah. just going to go and do something else and I'm going to come back and I'm going to think about it because obviously if you're struggling with it that badly, something's not working and you need to walk away and work out what that is. Because otherwise you could take your manuscript down a whole line that you just don't even want to go down. And then that's yeah. a lot of rewriting. But, um, yeah, no, look, I, honestly, I think one of the main benefits of having, uh, you know, you, you know, we were talking about author platforms is, is you know, a cheer squad. 
Yeah. Never, ever underestimate the benefit of a cheer squad. I love them. They're great. Definitely. My pink fibro community rocks. Just Mm -hmm. want to say that. Anyway. What's happening in the world of blogging this week? Ah, now this is interesting because this is um, sort of goes to a little bit about what we've been talking about. It's a it's a blog post on um, on a on a blog by Jeff Goins, and it's called "Why You Need to Stop Blogging and Regain Your Writing Soul." Now, blogging is one of those very very contentious things with authors. I know a lot of authors who will not blog at all because they feel it just completely dissipates their creativity. I know other bloggers, uh, sorry, other authors who wouldn't be without it because they use it as a place to organize their thoughts and, and all that sort of stuff. And um, this one, it talks about, you know, how blogging is often about instant gratification. You know, you write a piece up, you get a response, you mm. feel like you've done something for the day and it's great. But what it can also do is interfere with your big project stuff. If you're working on a novel and it's not going well, like my 400-word day, um, you can write, if you if you knock out a 600-word post that everybody loves, you, you sort of, it, it makes you feel better about yourself, but it's also 600 words that maybe could have gone somewhere else. Mm. And I found this really interesting because I... Empty calories. Em- empty calories. <laughs> when I started... Um, when I started blogging, I blogged every day. I Mm. blogged, um, you know, six or seven days a week for about two years. And then I realized um, it actually took me, I printed it out for my husband. I got it made into a book at blurb.com. You can actually just like export your entire blog into a book, which is lovely. Mm. But I had 350,000 words. Oh my God. In this book. Mm. And I just went to my, I thought to myself, 350,000 words. Like I could have written in that period of time, that's three novels. Mm. It's a lot of words. At least. So I knocked back, do 100,000 words a year on the blog, Mm. saving 250,000 words for other things. Mm. So I think that that's something that, I mean, every author, every writer has to find the balance for themselves. And, and, you know, some people can do seven a day and and that's fine. Um, I do think blogging is important for authors. I think it's a great way to keep your um, community interested and to keep your website fresh and all those different things. Um, but I do think that you have to look at the balance. What do mm. you think, Val? Wow. I think that um, yeah, balance is the key thing, but I th- I think the danger comes when you're using blogging as the procrasta blogging, oh, you know, yes. Yes. <laughs> just I like procrasta the... cleaning or procrasta yes. online shopping or, <laughs> or procrasta Real Housewives of New York City, you know. Yes, um, so I do think uh, authors should have a blog. I don't think that they have to, you know, write on it every day or even every week or, or whatever. Some level of frequency is, you know, regularity is important so that readers have an expectation. But um, I think that if you are feeling compelled to blog just because you've been told to, that's a really bad reason. Um, I think that if you're in the midst of a novel, your focus should be the novel, but you should maybe just set aside an hour or whatever per week or per two weeks to 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 then focus on your blog. Um, and, and it's all about discipline. Once your novel is over – Go for your life, you know. You can you can play around a bit more. You can procrastinate blog for however long you want <laughs> because you're probably procrastinate blogging so that you don't clean <laughs> by that point. <laughs> so 
I think that um, it, it, you just got to be true to yourself as to your motivations um, yeah. behind why you're blogging and really know that you're doing it for a particular reason, not just because somebody said you should or, or you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah. yeah. But let's move on now to our writer in residence this week. And who's that, Val? This week it's Deborah O'Brien. Now, I thought this was really interesting. I thought Deborah's really interesting. She's written three novels. She lives in – she divides her time between Sydney and a country town. Um, and she – it's interesting because she actually began life as a visual artist, you know, painting and teaching oh. painting and that sort of thing. But a few years ago, she's, she's always wanted to write, but somehow she ended up in as a career as a visual artist. But a few years ago, she just – kind of decided that she wanted to give it a go. She gives in the interview she explains how it all kind of happened. She ended up writing very successful first novel Mr Chen's Emporium and that was followed by The Jade Widow. These are all set in the fictional country town of Millbrook in Australia and her most recent book is called A Place of Her Own. And um she had a lot of interesting things to say about the craft of writing but also about um writing about uh, women of a certain age. So um, Mm -hmm. let's have a listen to Deborah. Deborah O'Brien is an Australian writer, visual artist and teacher. She is author of three novels, including Mr Chen's Emporium, followed by The Jade Widow. Her latest book is A Place of Her Own. Deborah has managed to combine a successful career as a painter with being a writer, a career she decided to pursue later in life. She divides her time between Sydney and her country property, which inspired the fictional country town of Millbrook, where all three of her novels are set. So thanks for joining us today, Deborah. I'm delighted to be here, Valerie. Now, tell us about your latest book, first off, A Place of Her Own. In case there are some listeners who haven't quite read it yet, tell us about it. Well, it's a story about a woman of a certain age. I guess she's much like me on a superficial level, building a new life for herself with all its complications and eventually facing a crisis that she never saw coming. And um, I've chosen an older female protagonist, I guess because I think it's really ironic that women of a certain age constitute a significant proportion of the reading public, Mm. yet with a few notable exceptions, we rarely see ourselves depicted as major protagonists in popular fiction. Mm. In fact, we're usually relegated to the sidelines, playing supporting roles, uh, often as stereotypes. Um, dotty eccentrics, busybodies, even that awful word cougars. <laughs> and <laughs> so I guess I wanted to tell a story about a heroine in her 50s who's a real person with aspirations and dreams and who also has valuable insights to offer the world. Now, you've said that we're often relegated to the sidelines. Mm. Why do you think this is the case? Well, I guess on one level, it's a kind of ageism thing. Um, and and I think that increasingly we'll see uh, more older women depicted in fiction as the centre of a story. 
Mm. They're always there on the sidelines as the best friends or the advisors or the confidants, the grandmothers, the mothers and so on. And I'm speaking about women over 50. Mm. Uh, If you look at popular fiction, you won't find too many major characters in that age group. But of course, as the readership increases, we all have Mm -hmm. to age, um, I think that there will be an increasing market for that. Mm. And did you... Uh, face any resistance from your publisher or, you know, people who were helping you out with the book or anything like that, you know, to have a protagonist of this age? No, nobody um, ever had an issue with it. In fact, it wasn't raised at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, I started with Mr Chen's Emporium. That had two storylines, one in the present, one in the past, about mm-hmm. two blow-ins to a country town. And the one in the past was a young woman aged 18 and the one in the present day, uh, a woman of a certain age. So that sort of set the tone for the other books. And the second book is really about two women aged 30 in the 1880s uh, building a place for themselves and trying to create an identity in a society which was totally male-dominated. So I don't always write older women, but there was, no, there were never any objections. In fact, I think quite the opposite. So this book is the third in a series. The first one is Mr. Chen's Emporium and the second one was The Jade Widow. Take us back to uh, when you first formed Mr. Chen's Emporium in your mind because Mm -hmm. I understand at the time that you were, or still are, a visual artist. How did you go from painting to writing? Well, I've always been a writer and um, as a child, I used to write stories in the back of my exercise books at mm-hmm. school and lavishly illustrate them. I wrote magazines for my family. And I used to, through my teens, write, I don't know that they were novels, but long chapter books. But I wrote in secret. So I've always been a closet storyteller. But I also had a career. Well, I had a career as a teacher. <laughs> I've had an eclectic um, life. And uh, I taught French and German. Mm-hmm. I've worked as, as an artist and I also had a career as a freelance journalist and writing non-fiction books in the lifestyle and art and design areas. So I was always writing and I loved the writing and what I didn't realise was that I actually loved it more than the painting but that's something that didn't quite dawn on me until fairly recently. Mm-hmm. So I did have that background and I was a closet storyteller so although I was out there publicly writing non-fiction Um, I didn't really let on that I still wrote stories, mostly in my head by then. I wasn't writing them down anymore. And, you know, Valerie, when I give talks and I tell people that I was a closet novelist, at the end, at least one person, usually a woman, will come up to me and and confess that they're a closet novelist Mm. too. Mm. And I do say, do you think it's time to come out of the closet or are you happy doing that? I mean, I think it's quite valid to to do that. There's yes. a difference between writing for its own sake, which is very pleasurable. Publishing or being published is a different thing altogether. Oh, yes. So they may be happy doing that or they may be apprehensive about coming out and hearing my story, I hope, gives them some uh, confidence to perhaps just... Uh, show their work to other people. That's the first step. Mm-mm. When did it dawn on you that you actually preferred the writing to the painting? Was it a particular point? Yeah, I think it actually was. That's a really good question. Um, what precipitated 
the writing was really my mother who has always believed in my storytelling ability because she used to read all those stories that I wrote as uh, a primary school student and then in my teens. She was the only one I showed and then after that I didn't show anyone. And she always said to me, you know, you should write a novel. And I said, oh, Mum, I wouldn't have a clue how to do that. I read widely but I had no idea. Mm. Uh, something that was 90,000 words to me seemed absolutely daunting and I said to her, I can only write facts. And then about five years ago, Valerie, she said to me, when are you going to get around to writing that novel? I'm not getting any younger, you know. <laughs> and, <laughs> and your mum says that to you. And uh, so that evening, I just went to my laptop, fortified uh, with a glass of wine, and I started typing. And I literally haven't stopped since. Wow. And when you started typing, did you start mm-hmm. typing what was then to become Mr. Chan's Emporium or was that something else? Well, I'll let you into a secret. Um, it was something else. And uh, that's the book that's been going for four and a half years and it's my baby and I love it. Wow. But I started Mr. Chen soon after. And being someone who's always multitasked, mm-hmm. and that's what women do anyway, yes. I usually have a couple of projects happening at the one time. So that if I go stale on one or I have problems with a plot point or I just run out of ideas, I put it aside for a while and I go on with the other project. So I never have writer's block Mm. because there's always something to go on with. Mm. And I started Mr. Chen because I was agonizing over the other book. It was keeping me awake at night. It was making me unhappy. And I Mm. thought, I don't think writing's supposed to do this to you. So uh, I started Mr. Chen and it was a joyful book to write, even though there are dark moments in it. I just really enjoyed it. And in fact, I enjoyed it so much that I asked an editor friend, whether it should be like that. Because mm-hmm. I thought writers <laughs> were supposed to agonise. And, you know, we hear about Faulkner and, and F. Scott Fitzgerald and so on. And, um, you know, writing for them was always uh, a, a challenging experience, although they produced magnificent work. So I thought that that was the way it had to be. And he said, no, he said, often the most successful projects are the ones that go smoothly during the writing pro- uh, process. So that was very encouraging to me. And uh, so I went between the other project and Mr. Chen. So tell us about Mr. Chen then, because prior to your mother saying this to you, you had not written a novel before. How did that, with your first book, how did that idea come into your head? How long did it take for you to write? And then take us through the process of the publishing journey, you know, because as a first-time novelist at the time, I think, a lot of people would find that process interesting. Well, I think having read really widely over the years, I had internalised some aspects of novel writing in terms of structure and characterisation. I think that's why reading is so important for an aspiring writer. So I had that background. um, And then I was quite inspired by a tree change we made where we had been looking for years for a country weekender and finally found one uh, on the outskirts of an old gold rush town and a little cottage that lies on the banks of a creek frequented by platypus. And that was, oh it is, it's beautiful. So uh, I wrote a lot of Mr. Chen there, but that really gave me the idea for a woman in the present day who's a blow-in, much like me, Mm. an artist who runs classes from home and is rebuilding her life in that country town. So that was 
the initial idea. And then I thought, I'm not sure that this is enough. And uh, I started researching some history related to gold rush towns, and I decided that I would have a, a blow-in, a heroine in the past who comes to live in this town. It's a dusty little place in the 1870s, and she's quite disillusioned by it until she steps through the doors of Mr. Chen's Emporium, which is a treasure house of possibilities, and meets its handsome owner, the Chinese merchant Charles Chen, and her life changes forever. And once I had those two two storylines, I was right. Mm. It just went from there. And I actually wrote it, I'm I'm not an organised person normally when I write, but I wrote it sequentially, um, one section after the other, and I would write about the woman in the present day and then think, okay, we've reached a point where I can pause here and move back to the past and vice mm. versa. Did you know the plot? Did you know what was going to happen to your characters <laughs> as you know before you put, put pen to paper or fingers to the keyboard or did it just come out and you kind of figured out what happened as you went along? Yes, well, I have to confess that I'm one of those wayward authors who doesn't plan. <laughs> so I, I do have a premise. And I had that in my head as I go. And that book was always two women, one gold rush town, then and now. And that's actually the tagline on the cover. But that was always my premise. So I had that. And I had a structure in that I worked according to the seasons. And I also alternated between the present and the past. So that kept me under control to some extent. Mm. But in everyday life, I'm a really organized person. (laughs) I have agendas and checklists. But what I love about writing and what's so liberating for me is that I don't do that when I write. If I had to, if I had to do chronologies ahead of time and character cards and plot outlines, I wouldn't write because it wouldn't be fun. For me, it's a journey of discovery. So I do let my characters lead the way. I understand that I'm writing them, but a lot of that is coming from my subconscious. Mm. And so I live the story along with them. And sometimes I'm surprised by the decisions they make and Mm. the things they do. Mm. Uh, And that sense of surprise is what makes writing so special for me. So when you have those magical moments when something happens that you weren't expecting, Mm. uh, it gives you goosebumps. And that's what I love. So when you let your characters surprise you and you let their lives unfold, sometimes mm-hmm. they can unfold into areas where it's very hard for them, for you to kind of progress them out of a corner or, you know, <laughs> it just, just doesn't quite work. Does, what proportion of your time or of your manuscript would you end up throwing out completely because it, their path, their life took a turn that just didn't really lead somewhere? Yeah, I think, Valerie, sometimes I have to rein them in. <laughs> they're, not to- they're not totally free reign. So I rein them in when I can see that it, it, it's going too far. But in a first draft, I might just let them go and, and uh, see what eventuates. When I do cut, and of course we all know about killing your darlings, well, mm. sometimes we have to cut the writing that we think is our best. Uh, I have what I call a, a, I call a deleted scenes file Mm. and so it's not like actually killing them it's just moving them into deleted scenes (laughs) and that's reassuring because I think that I can maybe go back and and put it in again later if I need to having said that I can't recall a time when I've taken something from my deleted scenes and put it back Mm. which is I think quite interesting in itself Mm. Uh, so I tend to do that as I go and I tend to edit as I go as well I guess that comes from magazine days Mm. where 
we really had tight deadlines. And uh, so I present my publisher with a reasonably polished product. So it's only a very light copy edit. Mm. So you tend to edit as you go, which is really interesting because every writer is different in how they approach that. So tell us then, let's let's go back to Mr. Chen's Emporium. How mm. long did it take you to write and then what was your process of finding a publisher? It was probably about a year in the actual writing because, remember, I was doing the other book at the same time, mm. so I was alternating. And then... I was writing basically because I wanted to give this book to my mother. Mm. I wasn't writing with publication in mind. And I know that sounds disingenuous, but that was the way I felt at that time. In fact, I didn't want to show it to anyone. It was my husband who persuaded me to show it to a neighbor who's uh, a book club coordinator. And she was very kind about it. And I thought, well, maybe it's not too bad. I went to a manuscript assessor Mm. and uh, they loved Mr. Chen, which gave me confidence. And at that point, I thought, well, look, I'm really happy with that. Uh, An objective expert likes my manuscript. Mm. But uh, then a friend said to me, look, you really need to take this to an agent or a publisher. And I guess, to me, fiction is something where your emotions are quite exposed. Mm. And I was worried about showing it to anyone beyond this circle that I'd show my manuscript to. But she convinced me to send... Uh, or to phone an agent who said she loved the title Mm. and would I send her the first three chapters, which I did. And a couple of weeks later, I received an email saying she'd like to read the full manuscript. Well, at that point, I had no idea that reading the full was a significant thing. Mm. (laughs) So I sent it along to her, sort of thinking that maybe she'd sent that email to the wrong person. But then... A couple of weeks later, I heard from her saying that she'd like to represent me. Well, I was over the moon and I said to her, well, this is a pinnacle for me, having someone like you who wants to champion my book and thinks the writing is good. So I thought that was it, basically. I was just happy. And she said, no, no, this isn't the pinnacle. We have to get you published. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I thought that would be a very long time and it would give me... Uh, a period in which I could kind of acclimatise to all this. But within two weeks, she was getting back to me and saying that Random House loved the manuscript and wanted to publish the book. Wow. And that was wonderful news, but it was also um, quite daunting because it was going to be out there. (laughs) Uh, People were going to be reading it. The wider public were were going to be reading my book. And um, that was quite overwhelming for me. I did feel very exposed at that point. And I don't think I enjoyed that news as much as I should have. <laughs> as, as it happened, of course, it all worked out well. So from that point, of course, we went to Structural Edit, which was actually quite a, a light one. I have mm-hmm. um, a wonderful publisher who's also my structural editor who just gives me ideas that enhance the book. So she would just suggest something and I'd run with it. And I love that. I love that period. I love to collaborate. Mm-hmm. And writing, as you know, as a writer, is such a solitary process. Mm-hmm. And it's lovely to get to that stage where you're collaborating with others and getting feedback on your work. And they're offering ideas that are inspirational and will mm-hmm. lead you in new directions. Now, at the time, did it, Even in the back of your head, did you think there's another two books in it? 
No, I never planned to write a trilogy. So tell us when you started thinking, actually, I'm not ready to leave, you know, the country town of Milnbrook alone. Mm. When, When did that happen? I think the response to Mr Chen, that people fell in love with this town and wanted to move there and wanted to know where it was. Mm. And, um, you know, people have been convinced it's it's a range of towns. Mm. I remember a journalist from the Mudgee area who told me that she was certain Millbrook's really Golgong. And then someone else said, no, it's Beechworth. And somebody else said, no, it's in the central west of New South Wales. So it was that response to the town. And I'd also had an idea that was living in my head for a long time about the girl from the past and picking up her life 12 years later in 1885. That's a period that really excites me in Australian history because we have the advent of the railways and we have uh, a, a submarine cable system that links Australia to the rest of the empire. Uh, we have all kinds of interesting characters that I thought I could have making cameo appearances in my book, like mm. Sir Henry Parks, the five-time premier, and various artists and so on. And also the catalyst for this book was Australia's first foreign war in 1885, which was a very brief campaign in the Sudan, but it was important because it was the precursor of bigger, deadlier wars to come, the Boer War, of course, and the First World War. Mm. So that I really wanted to write something set in that period. So that gave me the second book. And I had the title before I started writing the book. So that was The Jade Widow. Mm-mm. And then when did this particular book, mm-hmm. A Place of Her Own, yes. come into your, into your head? So A Place of Her Own was really gestating through all that period because, right. again, people were saying to me, what's what's going to happen to that woman in the present day who's called Angie Wallace? Mm. And so I thought I really have to write about her because the end of Mr. Chen's Emporium is a little bit ambivalent and open as far as she's concerned. In fact, I find it very difficult to write tight endings. I I hope I make them satisfying, but um, I can't do happy ever after (laughs) very much. (laughs) Sometimes I do, but not often. Mm. So I thought I need to resolve this woman's life. So that's how A Place of Her Own came about. And then I decided it was a really great opportunity to explore the concept of place, both in a real sense. So we have this town where she's escaped to. It's her refuge, her bolt hole, her safe haven, and she's building a new life there. And there's also the house that she's renovating, which is the old manse, which is my Mm. wish fulfillment home. It's my dream house. (laughs) And uh, so that's also a significant place. And there's also the sense of place um, as a psychological thing Mm. in terms of being in the right place uh, emotionally. And then at times, this female protagonist is all over the place psychologically. (laughs) Uh, so I really wanted to explore that concept in the book. Now, um, can you put people's questions to rest and actually say what town inspired Millbrook? I can say that it's the composite of many towns mm-hmm. and it's, it has aspects of my own, but there are certainly strong aspects of Beechworth because I did a lot of research there. My grandmother grew up in the central west of New South Wales in the Gold Rush area. Her family had settled there during the Gold Rush itself. So she had lots of stories she used to tell me, some of which I've incorporated into Mr. Chen's Emporium and the Jade Widow. Mm. So uh, 
Look, it really is a mythical town. I think that's why people like it so mm. much because it is quite idealised, although in a place of her own, we also see the dark side and the fact that even uh, the nicest town has its secrets. Mm. And um, so you've written three books, three novels now, but yes. in that time you've also at the same time been writing this other book, the one that you mm-hmm. first started when your mother kind of gave you yes. that prod. So um, tell us where you're at with that book and and has it been an a interesting journey? Has it been a frustrating journey that, that these other three books have come out <laughs> in the meantime? <laughs> T- tell us how you, how you feel about that book. Well, I do. I love this book and I think because I've I've had this very long journey with it, um, I, I do like it. It's an ill-fated love story that shifts in time between the 1970s and 2010. And I got to set it in some interesting places. It's set in London and Canberra. And I think it's about unresolved dreams and unfinished business that really interests me. And that's both on a personal level and on a political level, although there's not lots of politics. I I cut most of the political stuff because I did have some information dumps in there. Uh, So it's uh, a bittersweet story and there's a knock you for six twist at the end. And I don't normally write things like that, but this isn't just a twist to pull the rug out from under you. It's a twist that reveals um, the implicit uh, prejudices that all of us have. So it's basically finished, but I'm a serial tweaker <laughs> and I'm still revising, editing and polishing it. And while you're revising, editing and polishing that, have mm. you started another one yes, as a multitasker? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am a multitasker. There's another one that's almost finished. Um, it's, a, it's a novella and I don't really want to pad it out. And it's about a quirky collection of characters who are drawn together by a common interest. And I think that's all I can say at this stage. But it's it's um, engaging and funny and sweet. It's just a gentle little book. Okay, so tell us, when you're writing, uh, do you have a routine? Do you, you know, every writer's different. Do you start yeah. the day with your cup of tea and then you do this and you do that and reach X number of words as a target? What's your routine? Don't really have one, Valerie, except when I'm in the country. When I'm in the country on my own, say, in the winter, and I might have two weeks there, I usually have the cup of tea, but I start writing before breakfast, and I'm in my dressing gown, and then lunchtime comes, and I miss lunch, and uh, I just keep writing, and I'll write till the early hours of the morning. I know that's not a healthy thing to do. But I did that for Mr. Chen. I wrote a lot of Mr. Chen in the country and I always miss breakfast. And what I noticed happening in the book was there are many descriptions of delicious breakfast (laughs) in that book, which led me to write a blog article called Never Write When You're Hungry because it was almost like a menu at times and I, I did have to cut that. And that just reflected the fact that I had... You were hungry. Yes. <laughs> and I, I'm sure it happens to other people too. So I do have bad writing habits when I'm on my own. Um, when I'm in Sydney and I have family issues to deal with, I fit in writing whenever I can. And I love writing because it's it's flexible and it's portable and you can do that. Painting's different because you have to set up. You've got palettes mm-hmm. and easels and paints and then you've got to clean up afterwards. But I can just go to my laptop and, and play for an hour and it works. Mm. 
And um, for those people who are listening who are at the start of their writing journey, they haven't mm. had their Mr. Chen yet, um, what's your advice to them? Well, I think that every writer is an individual. So the sort of advice that I'd have to give would be the general things. As I said before, read widely. I know that's a cliche, but as far as I'm concerned, a solid background in reading is the foundation of good writing. And you don't find too many good writers who aren't also avid readers. And I would suggest reading all genre, not just the one that you're intending to write. Because I found, for example, in A Place of Her Own, that there are kind of suspense and thriller elements in that book. And I wonder where they came from. And I think it's the fact that I I love reading thrillers. Mm. So that obviously, those sort of structures were internalized and came out in that book because I certainly didn't plan it. And look, a good tip for anybody, this is a practical tip I used to give my students when I was teaching high school, is to read your work out loud. Mm. Jane Austen used to do it to her sister. And, and I, my poor husband has to suffer this all the time. He just goes <laughs> to sleep. I'm sitting at my laptop and I don't see that he's just collapsed in the chair. But it's the actual act of reading it aloud. It's a great way of finding typos and clunky language yeah. and eliminating them. And for me, I can also hear the rhythms, the cadences of the Absolutely. prose. The mm. musicality of prose is very important to me, even though I'm hopeless at music. I can't sing. I can't play a musical instrument, but I do love music. And those rhythms are like the soundtrack of a movie. The musicality of the words and the phrases and the sentences will reinforce the mood and the pacing. So I've been known to change a word from one syllable to a synonym with, uh, a word of one syllable to a synonym with two syllables mm. or to add an extra word to get an extra beat in the sentence to, to make it flow properly. And I would recommend if you get to proofreading stage, I always read the book aloud at that stage mm. just to check for final errors. It's a great way of finding them if you just read it you can easily mix, miss them. Um, and I, I guess finally, I know this sounds um, perhaps a bit twee, but I really recommend that you write from your heart. Mm. Obviously, once you're, you have a market, then perhaps you have to bear that market in mind, but you also have to balance that with being true to yourself. And I would say don't try to be someone else. For a while, when I was writing that first book, I was trying to be Ian McEwan. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I was an incredibly bad Ian McEwan. So I decided I'd better be myself, even though that might be mediocre, it was better than inferior. And, uh, you know, I learned as I went along with that. So be yourself, write things that matter to you, that you're passionate about. And I love is a quote from Wordsworth that, that I, always, um, I always remind people about. And, and he said something to the effect of, Fill your paper with the breathings of your heart. And that just gives me goosebumps because mm. I think when you write from your heart, from your emotions, it almost always works. When you write from your head, maybe not so much. And the other thing that I'd say to any aspiring writer is if you want to write, don't procrastinate. I have people who come up to me after a talk and say things like, I'm going to write a novel when my kids finish school mm. or when I retire. And I say to them, look, please, it's never too early to start. Perhaps not a 90,000-word novel if, if you don't have the time to devote to that, but pen a blog, write a journal, mm. write articles, short stories, just write. And the more you write, the more confident 
you'll become. And George Eliot said, and um, I'm probably paraphrasing here, it's never too late to be what you might have been. But I would say equally, it's never too early to start working on that dream that you have. So I really believe start writing now. Don't put it off. Brilliant advice. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Deborah. You're very welcome, Valerie. Well, that was Deborah O'Brien. Now, I think one of the great greatest things about our jobs, uh, Al, is that we get to meet so many interesting people from such diverse backgrounds. Oh, it's fantastic. And like, there's one of my favourite things in the whole world is to talk to people about writing. So I, I think I've just found my ideal spot in life right here <laughs> and- in my headset, talking to you. <laughs> and we have some pretty big names coming up. So everyone should stay tuned for that. We've got some great surprises in store. So we let's do. move on though. This week, we're talking about backing up. <laughs> oh, yes, we are. Yes. Why do we think this is so important, Al? Well, we think it's important because we've spoken to several people recently who have been caught out badly by not backing up. And I think that this is something that everybody thinks that the hard, you know, the fatal hard drive crash is not going to happen to them. And I have to say that it does. It's happened to me twice in the last couple of years. The first time that it happened, I was backing up. I did. I had a backup to a to a um, an external hard drive, um, but. I wasn't backing up properly. And so when my hard drive crashed, I lost I lost an enormous amount of stuff. And what I ended up, I managed to get most of it back. Um, and I'm talking about full manuscripts. I'm talking about ideas for things. I'm talking about emails that related to various um, bits and pieces that I had going on. I, I'm talking about my accounts, like because most of us are now doing our accounts via computer. We don't have hard yeah. copies anymore. All of that stuff disappeared for about 24 hours and I cannot tell you how sick it made me feel. Mm. Unfortunately, the magic man from Apple managed to get it, most of it back for me. I never got my emails back, but, you know, judging by the state of my inbox, that's not a bad thing mm-hmm. all around. Um, so that, that was a couple of years ago. And then last year, um, you know, for various reasons, I had a similar problem. But this time I was fully backed up via Time Machine, which is the Apple program which just does it for you, which I love. Um, and the whole, it was so much less stressful because I knew, okay, it, the computer was never coming back and that was sad, but all the information, all that stuff that's so important to us was all safely stored away and it just all magically came back when I got my new computer. Um, that peace of mind is invaluable. I can't yes. tell you how invaluable it is. So what about you? How do you back your stuff up? Well, I'm a big fan of backing up as well because I'm absolutely paranoid about such things, about losing, you know, <laughs> your life's work kind Everything. of thing. Yeah. Uh, so I also use Time Machine and I think that it's uh, really handy, really easy to use. However, on at least three occasions, even though I am a stickler and use Time Machine religiously and it does its job, um, so there's nothing wrong with the time machine um it's at this job but by some sheer fluke of whatever <laughs> the actual hard drive dies mm. so i've had that happen too it just <laughs> you because i think can't used, get it off it anyway <laughs> i know and you really keep, need to keep an eye out for that because mm. that happened to me one time as well and i went down to the i said i don't know what's happened and he goes you're using it every day with time machine it's constantly working they burn out and yeah. i went but no one tells you that. 
that's right. And oh, you don't know when it's going to die. It doesn't sort of say, I'm dying. So just I'm, goes. I'm so paranoid now that I not only back up to Time Machine, I also store not 100%, but the vast majority of my documents also in the cloud. And I'm so paranoid that I use SugarSync and a cubby and Dropbox and Google Drive. Heavens, you are. Look at you. You're covered on all in all areas. <laughs> so as long as they don't all go down at the same time. <laughs> then you're totally fine. I think I should be okay. So let's move on to our working writer's tip. We have a question from Ooh, we love Catherine a question. Pelosi. Thank you for your question, Catherine. And by the way, if any of you have any questions, please do email us and we will certainly try to get to them at, at podcast at writerscentre.com.au. So Catherine has um, posed a couple of really interesting questions and I'm keen to get your opinion out. Okay. She has said, I'm part of a writing group for children for children and young adults, as in she's writing for children and young adults. Most of us are not yet published but hoping to be one day. We've been told to create online platforms by publishers in the past. My question is, when you're not published, how do you refer to yourself? Are we writers, aspiring writers or authors? And the second part of the question, I'll do that now, is also what sort of content should we include on our social media platforms and websites? I can't help feeling like a bit of a fraud, like I'm promoting myself before I should. Saying that I know publishers want, saying that I know publishers want to see that you have a presence online. What are your thoughts, Al? Okay. Well, my first thought is that if you're writing, then you're a writer. I agree. So an aspiring writer is someone who's thinking about writing and hasn't actually written anything at all yet. Um, so I think that if you're, if you're writing, you're a writer. So I think you can call yourself a writer. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, really, I don't really have an issue with that. I don't see why people get so uptight about stuff like that. You, you, you know, when you get to published author status, that's when you start, you know, dancing from the rooftops and, calling and, and doing that. But, mm. and, you know, we're all writers. Let's, let's just get on with it. Mm. Um, so I think that's important. And as far as what should we be including in our social media platforms and websites, I think um, at this stage of proceedings, you're using your social media platforms and websites to, to find people who are interested in, in you in what you're doing and also yep. to network, um, to, to sort of connect with other writers and publishers and people online. So as far as I'm concerned, particularly with Twitter like, and places like that, like the, the worst possible usage for Twitter to me is buy my book, buy my book, buy my book, oh. I'm a writer, I'm a writer, I'm a writer. To me, Twitter is about, you know, talking to people and sharing interesting things. Like if you're if you're interested in, in writing for children and young adults, seek out the best links that you can find on that subject matter and share those. People will start to be interested in what you're doing. Um, do that sort of stuff. Write about what you're doing. If you've got a blog, you know, it's your blog. What are you passionate about? You know, you might write for children and young adults, but you might also be really, really interested in teacups. Write about them. Like it's, I, I think it's a matter of finding um, people who are interested in what you're saying and your voice and, and that sort of stuff. So that those are my thoughts anyway. What about you, Val? Mm. What do you think? I absolutely think you can call yourself a writer because you are currently writing, are you not? Um, I think that, of course, a, as you mentioned, once you become a published author, you can call yourself a published author. But mm. right now you are a writer. I mm. think it's really interesting because the, the, how you say some people are a bit um, uptight about such things because I remember I had a, an acquaintance who we used to 
to go to a lot of events where we'd meet, you know, new people together. Um, and uh, I would introduce myself and, say, and they'd say, oh, what do you do? I say, I'm a writer. And she would always jump in and say, she's a journalist, not a writer. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. That is weird. That's really weird. <laughs> and I would, if she didn't have the opportunity to jump in, I would actually notice out of the corner of my eye later her telling whoever it is that I had introduced myself to, she's actually a journalist, she's not a writer. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. Wow. I, I never got to the bottom of that, but I thought, it, I, I just throw that in because I thought it was so strange. But anyway... Um, in terms of what sort of <laughs> I know <laughs> random, right? Okay, yep. Um, uh, in terms of what sort of content to include on your social media, and uh, I agree with you. It's it's about you. It's about what you're interested in. Don't feel compelled to share co- uh, a constant stream of links about writing if that's not what you feel like doing, you know, Mm. share about your cats, share about what you're cooking right now, share about the the whole point of building your platform is to connect with people. And you, Mm. uh, you don't always need to connect with people about writing because then you are only connecting with other writers. Writers, You should be connecting to people generally about whatever it is that resonates with them about you. And that could be a whole range of different aspects of your personality. I think new writers make the mistake of thinking that they need to write about writing. And, Mm. I mean, you can if you want, absolutely. But if you don't want, don't. Write about other things. Write about where you went on holiday. Write about whatever. So, yeah, don't feel that you – you don't have to feel like a fraud because you should be only writing or sharing things that are are genuine about you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's because then it doesn't feel like self promotion. Then it feels like sharing, and that's exactly. what it should be. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Anyway, that brings Ooh. us to the end of our podcast for this week. I have to say, I've been loving doing these, um, and uh, you know, getting the feedback from people. So, thank you for those of you who have posted reviews and ratings on iTunes. If you haven't had a chance, we'd really appreciate it because um, that helps us with our rankings. Um, and if you have a question, uh, email us at podcast at writerscentre.com.au. But um, where do we find you, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontate.com. And you'll find me at valeriecoo.com. And the podcast and the show notes are at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast. But before we sign off, tell us, Al, what are you up to this week? Goodness me. I, well, I've got a lot of exciting interviews to do this week. I'm quite mm-hmm. excited and I'm very excited about bringing them to everyone. So um, I'm going to be thinking up interesting questions. That's going to be my way. <laughs> <laughs> thinking up interesting questions and talking to people about writing. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> and you, what are you doing? Well, actually, straight after this podcast, I'll be catching up with uh, Christina Sung, who is the blogger behind the fantastic blog, The Hungry Australian. And she won uh, the Australian Writer Centre's Best Australian Blogs competition for 2014. So I'm, you know, keen to pick her brain about how she's made her blog so successful and also, of course, to talk to her about um, the prize that uh, she's won from Trafalgar, uh, which is a trip to Turkey, which she'll be going on later this year. So, yeah. um, Fantastic. Going to be planning all of that. So very exciting. But in the meantime, thank you, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. Bye.